All right, this morning we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes 2, 12 through 26. So it's a pretty, pretty big chunk here. I'm going to try to get through it all. We will see if that happens. If not, there will be a, another part to it. Ecclesiastes 2, 12 through 26. Verse 12, so I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will the man do who will come after the king except what he has already been done, what has already been done? And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I know that one fate befalls them both. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. So I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after wind. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor, for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool? Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor, for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor, for which I have labored under the sun." When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This, too, is vanity and a great evil. For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all, his days, because all of his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This, too, is vanity." There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting, so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after wind." says the Word of God. Uh, this morning is sort of a, a part two. Last week we looked at Solomon's uh, pursuit of pleasure and of passion. And, and this passage here is sort of a, a culmination passage for Solomon. If you remember, I said at the beginning of this study that there are many different subgenres within Ecclesiastes or, or parts within this book. Uh, as a whole, this part serves as a type of reflection passage, and you'll see this as we go throughout. You have Solomon describing his pursuits, and then he'll pause, and he'll look back on those pursuits, and he'll say, these were vain pursuits. So what is Solomon dealing with in this passage? It is of death and legacy, death and legacy. 
after searching out wisdom, pleasure, possessions, all of which we looked at are good pursuits if done correctly, Solomon realizes that these pursuits really are vain pursuits. And why? Because he will die. And with his death, his wisdom will go. His possessions are left to someone else. Everything that he had amassed would go to someone else. And this really is a, a hearkening back to the first chapter of Ecclesiastes. If you remember, we looked at the comparison between man and the earth. And he said new generations would come and go upon the earth. You'd have a generation come and live on the earth and die, and then a new generation and a new generation. But the earth would remain. The earth would continue its repetitions. The earth continues to function as God had intended it to function. Therefore, what gain has Solomon really made in these pursuits, in his pursuit of, of wisdom and pleasure and possessions? He's, he's pausing here and he's saying, what benefit was there from these pursuits? What has it really done for me? Has this added to me or has this been perplexing or frustrating? Well, we know that it had frustrated and perplexed Solomon. Every pursuit that he had pursued frustrated him. So getting into the text this morning, looking at verse 12 through 14, it says, So I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness, and the, the wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I know that one fate befalls both of them. And remember, as we go through this book, Solomon will continue to reference various points that he's already talked about. So we've already looked at wisdom, we've already looked at pleasures and possessions, but all through the book he's going to keep looking back at each of these pursuits and commenting on them. And I'm not going to rehash the same Sunday school lesson every time he does, but I will talk about some things uh, as, he, as he brings up new points. And he does bring up a new point here. He, he turns again to wisdom and looks at it from a slightly different perspective. Remember, I, I discussed earlier that his pursuit of wisdom was, was sort of at a personal level. And that, that's a good pursuit. He's pursuing wisdom just for the sake of of wisdom which is not good but just a general pursuit of wisdom uh, when done for God's glory and our sanctification is a good thing but Solomon also has this other aspect and that is he is the king a king needs to be wise remember that was his prayer to God to be wise and as a reminder I believe this book was written at the end of Solomon's life. He, this, this book reads as a man who has lived a full life, and he stops and he looks back over the whole totality of his life as a person and as a king. I think he knows that he will soon die, and he sees to whom will inherit the kingdom. Not only that, but... Because of 
Solomon's gross idolatry, God has already told him what's going to happen to the kingdom after he dies. 1 Kings 11, 11 through 13 says, So the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this, that was, you have taken foreign wives, and you have built these, these high places, these idols, to false gods, to Baal and Ashtaroth. Because you have done this, because you have not kept my commandment, my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and the sake of Jerusalem, whom I have chosen. So you see, it's not as if Solomon has to wonder very much what's going to happen to the kingdom. Because of his sin, God said, this is what's going to happen. Because you have forsaken me, this will come about. The kingdom will be ripped from you. Not from you directly, but from your descendants. So again, this is one other reason why I think this book was written at the end of his life. He's, he's about to die, and he remembers what God had told him. God has already told Solomon that the king will be removed, that the kingdom will be removed. So it seems natural that Solomon would pause here to consider his legacy. Like, what have I built for myself? Was it any benefit? What have I done as a king? Have, have I made a, a good impact upon the kingdom? Have I left this in a good hands? Or what about the wisdom that he stored up as king? What benefit is there? Obviously, we know that he did not always make the right decisions. His sin was grievous, as we looked at. And his mass idolatry was really the destruction of the nation. Again, all throughout uh, Chronicles, uh, you see... When kings are mentioned, even the good kings, God continuously says, but they did not tear down the high places. But they did not tear down the high places. Time and time again, that wickedness is pointed out. And where did that wickedness start? It started with Solomon. He built the high places, and the nation never recovered. And it was eventually overrun by the Babylonians, the Assyrians. This was his legacy. But to some extent, the wisdom really did help him because he says here, it is better to be wise than a fool, and I think we would all agree with that. After all, a wise person has his eyes in his head, and a foolish person walks around in darkness. I love this portion of Scripture uh, because it, it is a great illustration of the difference between being a wise and being a fool, being wise and being a fool. See, a wise man knows where he's going, and he knows what he's supposed to be doing. But a fool walks around in darkness. He's groping around in darkness. And you, you get this, this great illustration of, of the wise man. The wise man stores up wisdom, not for his own sake, but for the sake of godliness. So therefore, he knows how to live in this life. But yet, even though it is good to be wise, both the wise and the foolish have the same earthly end, which is death. 
the wise and the fool will die. Both meet the same earthly fate. And this is his conclusion in verse 15. He says, Then I said to myself, As is the fate of the fool, it also is the, will befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, This too is vanity. Even the wise, even the godly, die. This is a real struggle within Solomon. He sees that all of his labor, everything that he, that he went after, even in his best moments, even when he did it in wisdom, it all felt vain to him because it all felt meaningless and purposeless because it was fleeting from him. J. Adams remarks, As Solomon reflected upon this, he wondered whether in the long run wisdom was worthwhile after all. Isn't that a difficult place to be in? To, to ponder at the end of your life, why did I do any of this? J. Adams continues, he said, he concluded that in terms of all its temporal benefits, it too is vanity. Not that it doesn't afford more present benefits. It, wisdom does give benefit, but this is key. But wisdom in the things of this world cannot change the ultimate destiny of the wise. Gathering wisdom will not change your earthly fate. Solomon will die like the rest. We will die like the rest. So Solomon is effectively saying here, when looking under the sun, under the curse, that is, striving for one's own pleasure, what benefit was there to amassing great wisdom? What benefit was there of amassing great wealth, great power, renown? These are weighty questions at the end of a man's life. If the end of the wise and the end of the fool is death, if the end of the, the wealthy and of the poor is the grave, why did I give myself to these pursuits? That's what Solomon's dealing with. And this is really the frustrating nature of pursuits when they become idols. When they're pursued for the sake of one's own end. And this is what Solomon is trying to teach us. These pursuits for the sake of one's own end will be frustrating. Because you will find no benefit at the end of your life for them. Continuing on in verses 16 and 19, he expands upon this idea of legacy and death. Not just of himself, but of all humanity. Because remember, as, as we go through this and, and we listen to what he says, he doesn't always say, I. We looked at last week, he was saying, I did this for myself, I did this. But in these moments of reflection, he's, he, he talks about humanity as a whole. It's more of a, a we or, or an us. He says, for there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool. Inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool die alike. So I hated life 
for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after wind. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored under the sun, for I must leave it to a man to com who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be wise, a wise man or a fool? Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor, for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This, too, is vanity. A passage like this can be incredibly tough for us to hear, especially those who are young and who have not contemplated death or legacy. Both the wise man and the fool for both of them, there is no lasting remembrance of him on the earth. That's what Solomon's saying. For a season while we're on earth, we're known by the people around us, right? We have friends, we have loved ones who know us, and they love us. But when we die, for a time we'll be, we will be remembered. But as generations come and generations go, our memory will fade. Some people are more well-known and will be more well-known. Princes, kings, presidents, they're all very well-known in their time on earth. And even for a significant period afterwards, people who have done great things, made great inventions, wrote great works of music, painted great works of art, for a time, they will be remembered. But as time continues to march on, even the brightest lights grow dim. This is life under the sun. Every person. So remember again, the, the comparison that Solomon is making throughout this book. It is between a worldly view of life under the sun and a godly view of life under the sun. That, that was a really good title. I didn't bring it today, but uh, Jay Adams' book, that one of the resources I've been using, he calls it Life Under the Sun, and he has S-U-N, and then under it has S-O-N. And, and the point is that that's what Ecclesiastes is making, uh, is, is the point of the book, striking between life under the curse and really life under the blessing of God. Because life under the sun, under Christ, is a blessing from God. But what do we know of the worldly man? The worldly man who thinks all there is to life is the, the here and now, the building up of wealth and, and renown, that person strives the hardest to be remembered. He strives the hardest to, re, to be remembered to make a mark upon history, to leave a legacy that he existed in this life, that he did something great. Well, why is that? Why is it that the worldly man is the man who's most concerned with leaving a legacy? Because that's all there is to the whole thing. According to the worldly man, it is the here and now. There's nothing else. Therefore, I need to be remembered. There is nothing beyond this life. What is the true significance? 
what tends to happen is man either becomes obsessed with himself to make himself known or he becomes a nihilist who thinks that there's no point to anything at all. Those are really the only two options. You either decide, I'm going to take everything for myself and make a name for myself, or you become a nihilist. You say, nothing matters. Who cares? Usually before arriving at the futility of, of nihilism, thinking that there's no purpose, each person passes through the former. You start with, oh, I've got to do this, I've got to do that, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do that. And then they end up as thinking nothing matters. See, Solomon started with this premise. Solomon started with the pursuit of storing up all these things for himself, the former, right? Making much of himself. But now what's he struggling with? The latter. All is vanity. See, he's gone through the exact same thing. Solomon started with that struggle. And I also think of passages like the Babel narrative. Do you remember what the people said to one another? Genesis 11:4. They said, "Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach the heaven." This is the key part. And let us make ourselves for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. It's what the, it's what the people of Babel wanted. Let us build this great monument so that we will be remembered. And what did God do? Scattered them. He said, nope, it's not going to happen. The great aim of the worldly is to be remembered, to build for himself a monument so that he can be worshipped after he dies. And God will not let that happen. This struggle within Solomon caused him to hate life and hate his labor. Think about that. This is a really tough passage. Now, as I said at the, on the outset of Ecclesiastes, that there are passages in Ecclesiastes that can be tough to hear or tough to deal with. I think this is one of them. It was for me, and I'm reading through Ecclesiastes, and Solomon comes to the conclusion, I hate life. I hate my labor. I hate it all. It's a strong word. I hate these things. Now think about it, though. Solomon's life was accompanied by what? Was he poor? Did he have very little? Was he insignificant? No, Solomon's life was accompanied by prestige, honor, glory. He had other foreign people come to him seeking out his wisdom, and he hated life. He hated it. The thought of leaving all that he had amassed to another person was unbearable to him. He labored tirelessly for these things, for wisdom, for pleasures, for possessions, just to die to leave it to another. And then again, he, he says, who knows if this person will be wise or will be a fool? That's tough. Everything that you've worked for, you know, we, we leave it to our children, and we want them to make good decisions with it. 
But once we're, who knows? You know, everything that we've worked for, who knows what will happen to it? Again, this is life under the sun. This is chasing what is fleeting, what is transient, what is temporary. And Solomon, time and time again, points us to what is eternal. And he's going to do that here in just a minute. Let's think of another man in Scripture who had it all. Moses. Didn't Moses have it all? Moses had all the wealth of Egypt at his feet. He could have had prestige and honor and glory, the same thing that Solomon had. Yet how did he regard it? See, this is the, the godly attitude. Hebrews eleven twenty four says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God, rather to enjoy the temporary pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. See, Solomon was looking to the wrong reward, as so many of us do. Moses was looking to the right reward. He considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt. Well, Solomon goes on to describe his condition in verses 20 through 23. He says, Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with him. This too is vanity and a great evil. For what does a man get in all his labor and in all his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days... His task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. The weariness of storing up these riches, wisdom, treasures, pleasures, had become a great burden to Solomon. Those who had never labored would enjoy the fruit of his labor. Everything that he worked for, he says here, Everything that I've done, everything that I've amassed will go to someone who's never worked for it. This is tough for Solomon. And he says, perhaps it will be a fool who will enjoy everything that I've worked for tirelessly. Everything that I've chased and, I, and I've worked to build, and we looked at that last week, he took great pride in all the things that he had built. He built up a great nation. And he says here, what if it goes to a fool? And it did go to fools. A text says that he lost sleep worrying over these things, things that he couldn't control. Every night he would go to bed. He would be restless because he was too worried about things that he had no control over. But he does come to a, some sort of uh, conclusion of this weariness. And this is one that's, that he's going to come back to time and time again. So we're going to see it throughout the book. Uh, verses 24 through 26. He says, There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. 
This also I have seen, sorry, this also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a man who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. While to the sinner, he has given the task of gathering and collecting, so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after wind. So again, this is the conclusion that Solomon's going to continue to, to get back to. And it's a little more, it, it gets more and more clear as he brings this up. He gets more and more uh, focused upon this conclusion as we go through the book. Basically, he's saying, enjoy what God has given you and don't sweat what you can't control. The phrase eat and drink is used in Ecclesiastes several times, and it means find satisfaction, find joy and contentment in life. Again, those things aren't bad things. He's saying don't be consumed with gathering for yourselves treasures under heaven. It is a grievous and a wearying task for men to labor all his days just to come to the end of his life and give it to another. He's saying, don't let that be your purpose in life. Don't sweat what you can't control. Can you control what really happens to everything that, that you possess after you die? Can you control that? Do you even care about that? You can write a will, right? That's a good thing. Writing wills, that's a good thing. But you aren't here to make sure your money is spent wisely. If you're a believer, will you really care? If you're a believer, will you really care what happened to the treasures you amassed on earth? You will be in the presence of a holy God who sent his son to save you. So, do not worry about the things of this life. That's what Solomon's saying. Easier said than done. I know. I, for one, have struggled immensely with anxiety, panic attacks, all these things, about things that I cannot control. And the end is frustration and more anxiety. They benefit me nothing. So I know it's easier said than done. But we're told, do not let your hearts be troubled. But don't just enjoy the gifts of God. This is key. Don't just enjoy the gifts of God. The things that God has given you are good gifts. What he has given you is good. But don't just enjoy the gifts. Enjoy God. Solomon says this is from the hand of God. That is, God's providence over his life and ours. Things that we have are from the hand of God. I really like verse 25. It's, it's a great reminder to us. How can we eat or have enjoyment without him? Without him. Can we? Can we truly find satisfaction, joy, contentment in this life without him. 
If we understand things rightly, can we have anything apart from him? No. Everything that we have is a gift of God. And we're not to be like the foolish who worship the gifts instead of the gift giver. But there is need for labor. There is need for gathering wisdom. So I want to keep bringing that point up. When, When Solomon talks about these pursuits, he's talking about these pursuits under the sun. The chasing after pleasures, possessions, wisdom for their own ends, for the sake of, of adding benefit to you instead of for the sake of godliness. So we do need to be wise. We do need to labor. We're commanded to labor. But the chief end of our lives is not to amass whatever we can amass, but whatever we do have, We use those things for God's glory. Solomon makes a distinction here between the righteous and the wicked. He said, God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to those who are good in his sight. And tireless labor to the wicked. And then he says, even even the labor of the wicked will go to the righteous. Everything that the wicked does will end up in the hands of the righteous. That there is a, a, a temporary prosperity of the wicked, and we see that. But it will soon go to those who are godly. That's Solomon's conclusion here. Who truly are the beneficiaries of God's gifts? God's people. Those whom he has called for himself those for whom Christ died. All things have been given to Christ and those in him. That's the key. All things have been given to Christ and those who are in him. The nations are his inheritance. Everything belongs to Christ and those in him. One commentator said of of Solomon, I thought this was a good summation of of this passage. He said, the godly Solomon had sanctification, uh, sorry, not sanctification, the godly Solomon had satisfaction in his riches and wisdom when God gave them. The backsliding Solomon had no happiness when he sought it in themselves apart from God. So you have Solomon when God gives all these things to him, Solomon's happy. He, God had answered his prayers. He, Solomon prayed for wisdom. God gave him wisdom. He said, because, I've, because you've asked this, I will give you so much more. And Solomon was happy with that. But then, as he became consumed with these pursuits, he started struggling with them. Again, the, the backsliding Solomon, when he, when he started to struggle with these things, lost all of his satisfaction in the gifts that God had given him because he pursued them for himself. Now, quickly, before we wrap up, I said last week I was going to talk about another uh, philosophy of, of, of men, 
um, that, that pertains to this, and that's Stoicism. And Stoicism suggests that the ideal state of man is uh, apathos. What, what does that sound like? Apathy. So Stoicism suggests that the, the ideal state of man, this is, this is how you should be. You should be apathetic. That is, have little to no emotion about anything. You're just there in the present, and there's nothing going on. You're just apathetic about everything. And some have accused Solomon of Stoicism. So is, is Solomon a, a Stoic? No, he's not. Although Solomon rightly identifies that vexation of the spirit or you know, frustration or, or uh, moroseness and the like is a, is a result of chasing things in this life with no eternal consequence, that does not mean that we are to strive to be neutral in our emotions and affections. See, people, people have accused him because he's, he's basically saying everything that I do, everything that I chase after is vanity. So I'm just going to be apathetic about life. So therefore, Solomon was a, a stoic. But rather, Solomon teaches us that we need to reorient our lives, our emotions, our affections. That's the key. We are to have emotions and affections. God has created us in that way, but for the right reasons. J. Adams writes, But Solomon also believed that blessings in this life that one legitimately drives from God's hand should be enjoyed to the full. You are to enjoy the gifts of God. And having eternity in his heart and the hope of a righteous judgment in his future the believer may rejoice throughout all his days if he fears God and his commandments. When God created man with his emotions, because God created man with emotions, he intended all of them to be expressed. Emotion, even high emotion, is not wrong, but it must be aroused by proper biblical concerns and must be expressed in proper biblical ways. And as I read that, I immediately thought of R.C. Sproul when he was on stage and someone had asked him, why, why was the punishment so severe uh, against Adam and Eve when they ate the forbidden fruit? And R.C. paused for a second, and then he looks at the audience and he's like, what's wrong with you people? You know, it's the famous, what's wrong with you people? That was high emotion. Was that wrong? Should he have been a stoic? No, he was moved by emotion but also by affection for the God whom he loves. We ought to be that same way. We are not to be Stoics. We are to enjoy the blessings of God. We are to be affectionate. We are to be emotional. We're to love one another, not to have no emotion toward each other. We're to deeply love one another. God has called us to this. So we don't need to mistake Solomon saying something that he's not saying. But what can we learn from this passage of, scri of Scripture? Whatever God gives us, let us thank him for it. Let us enjoy it. But let our highest aim, our chief end, be to glorify God 
and to enjoy Him. Enjoy Him. Everything else is a bonus. He has given His people something that far surpasses the treasures of Solomon, the treasures of Egypt. Indeed, it is worth more than all the riches on earth. What has God given his people? He has given us a Savior who is more beautiful than the lilies of the field and more valuable than all the treasures under the sun. How could we want love? He has given so much, and everything else that we have is benefit. He's given us his Son. What else could we need? Okay. That's all that I have. Have any questions or comments? Joyce in the jail. I mean, they were completely ecstatic and emotional in the jail cell. And yet, some of the richest people in the world are never satisfied because they have the wrong view of themselves. So, I mean, it just seems to me that the whole process, you know, you were saying, like, if you're pursuing it for yourself or pursuing it for God, you're pursuing it regardless. It's a gift from God. But while you're pursuing it, you just recognize, like Job, I mean, God can take it away. And Rightly so, because what do I deserve? So then when you look at it that way, you know, I, I see this in the outdoor world. You know, when I go out and enjoy nature, I mean, I just worship God. And yet when I'm around others who love nature but don't know God, they, it's like they, they just can't quite grasp it. And they strive and try, we've got to save this earth, we've got to, you know, all of it. It's like, you just, you're yeah. worshiping the wrong thing. Yeah. You have the wrong view. Yeah. And I think the more and more I've, I've learned about this, or studied or thought about it, the younger me would have slapped the table and thought them foolish. But the, the Ryan now greatly pities them and wants them to come to know what is beautiful. So, yeah. I think the, uh, <clears throat> some of the manifestation of the, the world in view that Solomon stresses here is uh, people that uh, don't want to have the next generation, basically. Why, why do you want to have the next generation if you have that kind of world in view? And that's totally opposite of what the Lord teaches us in a, in a covenantal view. But I can see how, you know, if you, if you really think about these things and you're worldly, Okay, why am I going to bother going through the stress and strain of having children that are going to inherit my wealth? Mm -hmm. And I think we see a lot of that being manifested in society around us. Yeah. And that goes back to the idea of hedonism that we looked at last week. You just do whatever makes you happy, which is why we continue to pray against the abortion mill, because they're actually following their philosophy. Well, this isn't about, I just, I'm gonna do whatever makes me happy, whether that means the, the death of another or not. So, yeah, you're right, there's no, no spiritual motivation for generational covenantal blessing or anything like that. Anything else? All right, let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for uh, looking, uh, being able to look at uh, Ecclesiastes, and uh, we pray that you would reorient our hearts, our emotions, our affections to you. Uh, when we stray, we, Father, we pray that you would uh, bring us back and that you would hold us firm as you've promised to do. Uh, we now ask that you would prepare us for worship, that we would uh, hear your word, and uh, we would store up the riches of, of Scripture, and that uh, you would give us um, an increase in, in faith to, uh, to love and to, to cherish you. Uh, now we ask that you would uh, be with our service, be with us as we, as we hear. In Christ's name we pray, amen. <clears throat> 